pray for him as we get started. So why don't we pray? Lord, your graciousness just overwhelms us, and if we recognize that every day, we're better off. Uh, uh, we thank you for Doug and just uh, uh, what a father he's been for Tyler and just uh, the man that he is. We, we pray that you watch over him medically, just uh, what's going on in his body. You know his body more than anything or any way that we would know about it uh, because you, you created him. And we pray that uh, you get him healthy, that uh, he has many years ahead of him and, and can be a grandfather and a, and a father and a, and a husband. And uh, we just pray that, uh, that you would heal him and heal him quickly. And in your loving name, Jesus, amen. amen. You're welcome, man. Well, um, before we get started on the study, I've not heard back from Leor yet. So I've I'm, I'm been trying to say, hey, just... Whenever you're ready, so now I got to go. Hey, do you want to do this or not? So, but I, I went ahead and uh, I was talking with somebody um, or a couple of different people this last week about the Temple Mount. So I don't know who it was. So if it was you, great. If not, then you get the byproduct of us kind of talking about it. So I went back and found a few pictures from the Temple Mount from when we went to Israel. And speaking of Israel, Lisa grabbed out our um, Israel. Uh, a scrapbook that we have over there pictures and explanations and different things of when our trip when we took our trip to israel so if you want to look at that you can so let's see ah uh, so around jerusalem uh, this is a terrible picture i had to, uh, to try to get an overview you know you had to copy and paste from from the internet and it's kind of hard here's the temple mount okay right there mount of olives is here kidron valley is here the valley of uh you know I'm, uh, I can't pronounce the other valley goes right back over here and basically you have a wall that went around Jerusalem all the way through to these different gates and there was eight I think eight gates that led into uh, Jerusalem proper during that time okay so when Jesus um, you know there's debate about where Jesus was actually put on the cross was it um I don't know where it's located in here, but it's actually in the inside of the wall, not outside the wall, where the uh, where the Catholic faith says uh, he was uh, crucified, where they rub the stuff on the rock because it becomes magical all of a sudden. You know, I've kind of showed pictures of that before. And um, and the, there's a garden tomb up over there also. But there's also a debate now about whether it was over here on the Mount of Olives somewhere, because that's a prominent point that everybody would see also especially all the Jewish leadership um, that they were trying to quash what was going on and, and, and so forth. So just some different things. But you have the dung gate, which is literally the trash gate. So all the trash went out, uh, which is ironic toward the city of David where all the kings lived. So I don't know why, but um, the golden gate. Um, I want to talk about the golden gate and um, the, three, uh, the three arches gate. Uh, one goes straight into the temple. There's two different temple area, two different thoughts on where the temple was on the Temple Mount. One thought is, and I'll talk a little bit about it, would be over here, um, the Golden Gate. There's another rock uh, over here that has a little gazebo over it. Um, a lot of people thought it was where the Dome of the Rock is. Some people are saying it's actually over here on this side, and I'll explain the reasons why here just in a second. So, ancient times. This is what people think it looks like. One of the things that we don't realize is from the Mount of Olives, there was two different bridges that went over to 
the, um, the temple. So we think you have to go down the Kidron Valley. Jesus came down the Mount of Olives and then went across a bridge to go into the temple area. This actually gets you into the, uh, um, into the gate in Jerusalem, and then you have to go on up into the temple area, okay? This was called the Golden Gate. This is the Triple Gate or the Three Arches Gate over there. The reason why they did bridges going across there was because the, um, the priest or the rabbis had to go sacrifice the red heifer for them to be, uh, I'd have to research more about this. I forgot exactly all the wordage, but basically to, to purify themselves and purify Israel, a, a red heifer had to be sacrificed and it had to be sacrificed outside the gates. So they did it over on the Mount of Olives. The priests could not walk across any graves or they would become uh, unclean and they'd have to go through a cleaning ritual to be able to go back into the temple and all that. So they built these things so they didn't have to walk directly upon graves. Okay, So there was actually two different ones. There's passage of scripture, I'll have to look up where it is, that talks about looking from the Mount of Olives through the gate to the temple. Okay, So that's why they think it's either over here on this side, to the right of the Dome of the Rock, where the temple originally was, or it would have been over here where this particular person uh, believes it is going across that gate uh, or the triple gate. So just interesting things. Um, does it really matter? No, not really. You know, it, it doesn't change what we believe or anything. It just uh, is an interesting uh, talking points. So that's what that is. Oh, and here's a second picture of the Golden Gate going that way. Um, this is the Lion Gate. I thought that was pretty cool. They call it the Lion Gates because the lions are on it. Uh, this is the Arab Gate. It's, uh, now it's called the Arab Gate. I forgot which gate it was. Let me go back here. Um, it would have been uh, the Damascus Gate. It's now called the um, Arab Gate because that's where all the Arabs go in and out most of the time. And then here's a picture from the Mount of Olives looking across all these Muslim graves, all these Jewish graves. If you look at Jewish graves, you'll see rocks all over the little graves. Every time you visit the grave, you'd put a rock on there to say, I remember you. So you'll see rocks all over Jewish graves. It's kind of a remembrance. Reason why there's Muslim uh, graves over there is they believe or um, a rabbi, which Christ is, cannot walk across, like we said, graves because he becomes impure, right? He can't go into the temple area. Well, Revelation, it talks about him entering in and going to the temple area and walking to the temple area. So they put all these graves there, which kind of begs the question. If you don't believe he's God, if you don't believe he can come back, then why put all the graves there, right? You know, what are you afraid of? You know, so kind of interesting uh, laugh. This is the gate beautiful. And then the triple, uh, triple gate would have been um, right over in this area. So just thought I'd throw those in there. Again, that's a close-up of the deal with the Muslim graves over there. This is the inside of that gate. And again, we think of, oh, just a gate. Open the door, you go in. No, they were hard to get into. This is the, the outer wall of Jerusalem. 
uh, they wanted to make it hard to get into so they couldn't be invaded, okay? So this is a really huge, thick gate that inside you would have to weave yourself to be able to go into. So, so that's, uh, I just thought I'd throw in some, some pictures every week. We'll try to do something different. Hopefully Lior will get back to me. I'll have to try to, try to get to him. So tonight we are in Numbers. So you have Genesis, Exodus, and continuing the story is Numbers. You know, Leviticus kind of interrupts it. Deuteronomy kind of interrupts it. They're kind of external uh, books, but, but they're there for a purpose. And we hit Numbers because from Genesis, you have creation, you have the fall of man, you have um, Noah, you, you have uh, Abraham and his family, you have all the, the stories of Genesis, and that runs right into to Abraham, I mean, uh, right into, um, um, what's his name that took him to Egypt? Well, not Moses, but before Moses. Joseph, thank you. You had Joseph going to Egypt. And then you had the, you know, the, uh, the, the Israelites there for 400 years. And then you have Moses come along in the book of uh, Exodus. And then, we're, you know, then they escape from Egypt and we go into Numbers. And that's right after. And, and Leviticus is right in there. It kind of intermingles between those two books. And, and so we've kind of covered a little bit of it. But uh, I wanted to go ahead and just cover the whole book. So at this point, Israel is in a good position. They've escaped the Exodus, had everything going for them. A new relationship that was unique to any God there was, which we know there was only one God. But, you know, in external, you know, they believe that everything had, you know, the frog God, this God, that God, the sun God, the, you know, the moon God, the dirt God. Israel's got uh, everything going for themselves you got a unique relationship. You have a true God that wants to have that relationship. So now they have the tabernacle, they have worship ministry going on, they have a legal system, how to deal with each other, and God has set them up for success. And the book of Numbers kind of uh, relates the struggle that they had with obedience. Does anybody relate to that? You know, obeying God, obeying our parents, obeying our laws. You know what I'm saying? We struggle with that because innately we want to do what we want to do instead of following what other people want us to do. But it also relates to us the consequences of that disobedience. And that's what numbers is. So numbers involves numbers. It involves counting. It's a book of, of census report, reports. Uh, this is the way they knew who was with them, um, what families they had with them. And remember, they even had Egyptians that came along with them that said, okay, I'm out of here. If this is going on, what's going on in Egypt, I'm with you guys. And they, they were accepted within and into the clans of Jerusalem. So now they're like, you know, they just ran from Egypt and they're like, okay, now who's with us? Who do we have? What do we have? How many do we have? And then it recounts 40 years of being in the desert from Mount Sinai to the plains of Joab. So in one sense, the book of Numbers kind of is meandering and it's kind of confusing. Uh, it, you know, in another, it's broken down into chronological and ge geographical arrangement. You have three main parts. You have Mount Sinai, which is Numbers 1 through 10. It's instructions on how to get to the promised land. This is the very beginning, okay? You're out of Egypt. Here's your instructions. We're fixing ahead that way, okay? 
And uh, we've kind of already gone over some of that. What happens? They get out there and they say, uh, we can't do it. Da, da, da. And God says, OK, guys, we're going to be punished here. You're everybody 20 and older. You can't go into uh, to the promised land. So the first part is instructions how to get into the promised land. The second part is the wandering in the desert. Forty years. And it's uh, chapters 10 through 20. It's it's basically the failure to trust God. And it shows it over and over how God gave them a chance to trust him and how they rejected that trust and how they went against that trust. And then you have the plains of Moab, uh, chapter 20 to 36. And again, this is instructions and preparations to enter the promised land. Um, the second time, because he has to tell the new generation everything he told the old generation. Does that make sense? Uh, so that's what they're doing. The confusing part of this book is it is part legal. It is part historical narratives. And it's part numbers, as in literally numbers, counting people, counting tribes, the number of people in certain families. And, and you, you know, all thrown in, it seems like very arbitrary, um, sounds like some of my sermons where I throw in stuff that has nothing to do with what God is trying to say. But uh, through our modern thought of organization, we think, oh, it should be laid out like this. And it's not laid out like that. It is, so, so we have to get beyond our, our thought of organization or lack thereof. And we, ha you know, in the middle of all of everything, we all of a sudden we see the budding of, of Aaron's rod in chapter 17. And then we get the prophecies of Balaam thrown in at the end with the talking donkey. I mean, who doesn't love a, a talking donkey, right? And you get that thrown in and Brandon's like, what? Uh, <laughs> but it shows the hand of God on Israel and being used for his purposes. So we see, you know, what we see is a unified purpose for God's people. And, you know, it's, it's very important. It's a contrast between holy and profane, or unholy is another word to use there. The holy is shown in the presence of God. So this book you will see where you have God's holiness shown through His presence. And then you will see um, the unholiness or the profane... Um, well, let me go over the, the holy. You have the blessing of the numbers. In other words, go out and multiply, and God blesses them by having more children and so forth. Uh, you have the laws of cleanliness. Um, you stay clean. You follow these eating guidelines. You, you follow these other guidelines that we talked about last week where you have two chapters that, you know, just go over fungus, you know. Uh, you follow these guidelines. You're going to be blessed. You have the service of the Levites, the priest. Uh, you follow that. The priests are going to bless you through me. You have the atonement of Aaron and you have the inheritance of what we call clean land. The promise of you're going to go in there and conquer and everybody you're going to you're going to push everybody out of the way and it's going to be clean land. And then you have that contrasted with the profane or unholy. Uh, it's represented by all sorts of uncleanliness and, you know, which has the result of God's wrath upon them. Um, you have his plagues, you get lost inheritance by the people that are dying. You know, that, that group that's over 20 years of age and over, they lose that inheritance. It goes on to the next generation. And you have the pollution of the land. In other words, when they go into the land, they're going to have to continually fight and fight and fight because God knows they're not going to follow his ways of doing that. So let's look at the book of Numbers 
by looking at the numbers. In two places, it lists out the population of Israel's men at 600,000. So again, we've gone over this anywhere from 2 million people to 4 million people, and there's some debate on that. This would almost double the size of the population of Canaan. So think about this. The land that they're going into, when they show up, it's going to double the population. So what does that do to the resources? Well, when you have increased resources, or increased people, less resource, right? And we see that, we've seen that throughout the ages in, in California when it comes to, to water and land and, and fruit and, you know, all those things. When you have increased number of people come into an area, you have less resources. I had a friend of mine that did population growth up in the Bay Area and he planned out freeways and all that kind of stuff for, the, for Caltrans and the state. And he said, this is what the population is going to be in the uh, 90s or right at the 2000 mark. And he was right on. This guy was old, okay? Uh, he was a friend of mine. And he goes, I planned out all these freeways that needed to happen that didn't happen. And you ought to go up and drive in Bay Area traffic. I mean, it's worse now than, you know, I've been gone for 15, 16, 17 years now. I mean, it's worse now compared to when, and it was bad back then. Um, so, you know, you have increased population and, it, and uh, it, that's what was going to happen. So at the beginning of the book, God is preparing them for the promised land. This is chapters 1 through 10. Mount Sinai was not their final destination. So God instructs them on how to break camp. He literally gives them instructions. This is how you put away the temple. This is how you store the stuff. This is how you're going to take it. This is the carts you're going to use. You need to build this. You need to do that. So he gives them all the different stuff. And he says, you're supposed to follow me through the desert. And what's interesting is chapter 9 is important because they celebrate the Passover before leaving the mountain. So they celebrated Passover, the true Passover, literally, when the angel of death passed over them and went on to the Egyptians, right? They celebrated that. They get out to the desert. They're finally celebrating Passover again. It has a whole new meaning to them. They will mess up. And then the next time they will have Passover in this manner that's written down at least is right before the battle of Jericho and Joshua 5. Now, did they do Passover in between those years? We don't know. It's not written down. I'm not saying they didn't, but it wasn't important enough to write down um, on that. So uh, I don't want to definitely say, well, this is how it was. I just don't read it, you know, and God doesn't show us everything in his word. But this shows us that, that recognizing and celebrating the past can be, you know, can prepare us for the future. It's a time to remember God's guidance. It's a, a time to reconnect with God, um, ask Him to watch over us, just like they were doing at that time. He loves that toy, by the way. Yeah, He does. It, it's, it's okay. We, we love our kids, right? And we love them around. So. So the last part of chapter 9 is about God's presence, and it's important to the Israelites also because they are prepared. 
They're organized around the temple. So if you read 1 through 10, you'll see that they'll be organized in camps. The temple's in the middle, and they're organized all the way around that temple. In other words, he's saying you all have access to God here through your representatives and through the people that I assigned to you. And, and all the tribes have their own area with God in the center. And this is chapters 1 um, through 2. And then the Levites, um, we see them serving. Chapters 3 and 4 are you know, all about the Levites uh, uh, serving. So the first four chapters are all about organization. Five, uh, five and six deal with how to, uh, how to deal with sin amongst the people. What happens when somebody sins? What happens when somebody sins enough that you need to um, knock them out? In other words, kick them out of the camp because it did happen and they needed to kick some people out of the camp. You know, how do you deal with that kind of stuff? Uh, We hate to talk about that kind of stuff, but there's sometimes when you got to say you're not welcome anymore. You know, uh, hopefully that's few and far in between. But, you know, we've had to do that on occasion where we told somebody you're you're just not welcome anymore. Um, And then deal with that as it happens. Um, But then you have uh, chapter six, the importance of vows. In other words, you've made a vow to God and it's important for you to remain faithful to that vow, faithful to to your calling and what you've said you're going to do uh, for the Lord. And I think a lot of times we get busy, we get tired, and we just go, "Ah, okay, well, I'll just hold off on that for right now. And this book of Numbers talks about remaining faithful uh, to our commitments to God. And then you have 7 out of 10, and 7 through 10 are totally out of order. It's all about tabernacle and transporting it through the desert um why is it out of order again it's a toss-up we just don't know why um but now we reach them actually going out into the desert they kind of barely got to the desert you know they're around mount sinai uh, around where moses knew this area and all that but now they're really going out into the desert and they will end up spending you know a total of 40 years but i think it's 38 years after this point out in there but they didn't know that at this point and it says that they departed on the exact date of the 20th day of the second month of the second year since their rescue out of egypt the divine cloud that was in the holy of holies rose out of the tabernacle They recognized that God's fixing a move. And they said, hey, God told us about this. Let's pack up. And they all went to to work. They packed up and they followed the Lord. Moses was overjoyed. He prayed that God's enemies would just be scattered and and they would just be just, just wiped out and just get out of their way. And they were going to the promised land. He was ready. And so were the people ready to rebel moses wasn't ready to rebel but the people were it's it's very interesting because very quickly in chapter 11 they rebelled against god and it says here in numbers 11 now the people complained about their hardships in hearing of the lord and when he heard them his anger was aroused then fire from the lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp and when the people cried out to moses he prayed to the Lord and fire died down. So this place was called uh, Tabara, 
which, you know, because fire from the Lord burned among them. And Tabara, however you want to pronounce that, literally means f- uh, a burned area or fired area. Um, so you can see God's anger coming up in Hebrews. And we're going to talk about this a little later, too. Hebrews talks about how our God is a consuming fire. And it, 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 the Lord is supposed to consume us in a good way. Sometimes the Lord's anger burns and it consumes in a negative way from our point of view. But as soon as they left Egypt, they started complaining about what? Food. Food. As soon as they got out there. So God provides the quails. He provides the bread, manna. Anybody know the definition of manna? What is it? No, literally the definition is, what is it? <laughs> I kind of tricked you there. Okay. But literally, that's what manna means. What is it? They didn't know, you know. Um, I'm surprised. We've gone over Exodus a couple times. <laughs> That'll be a discussion for another time. But, but quail had ran out, and now manna was just left, and God was angry, and a consuming fire came down. Later, they got plagues among the people. Okay. Then somehow they forgot how bad Egypt was. You know what I'm saying? You finally get out of a bad situation. You go for a few months and then you're like, I really liked it back there. And that's what they did with Egypt. You know, God rescued them and all they had to do is follow God and they stopped following God. And then their inner attitude of rebellion came out. After all the miracles, after all the provisions, after everything, they still found things to complain about. Does this sound like us or what? I mean, nothing's really changed, has it, you know? They opposed Aaron and Miriam uh, to the leadership of Moses. And then what does God do? Or then to God, they, they, they opposed Moses' own, well, Moses' own family was jealous of his position, of him being able to talk with God, even after God showed them that Moses was supposed to be in charge. They still complain. God was leading them into the promised land, and they were complaining and rebelling. And then chapters 13 and 14, they refused the promised land. And they said, if only we had died in Egypt. Well, a lot of grateful people, huh? <laughs> you know, you just can't please them at all, you know. So what did they do? They decided to replace Moses as leader. And God got so angry, his glory came down to the temple. And when I say his glory, all the glory of God came down to the temple. And what does that mean? That means blinding light went everywhere over Israelites, okay? Remember Moses up in the cleft of the cliff? And, you know, he says, God, can I see your face? He says, no, you can't see my face, but but after I walk by, look out. And he did. And the glory of God shined on Moses' face so much, what, what happened? Yeah, he glowed. And he had to wear a veil over his face. Okay, imagine the glory of God coming out like that in the temple and people trying to freak out you know people are freaking out what's going on and then you know you know 
Moses begged God not to destroy them. And that's when God said, anyone over 20, you cannot enter the promised land. The people said, wait, 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 wait. We're really sorry. We're really sorry. We can go into the promised land now. And they set out on their own and they went to a battle against the Amalekites and the Canaanites. They consistently ignored Moses when he spoke for God and they got whooped, completely whooped. And we see that. We get out in front of God. We don't follow God. And we think we can go out and do these battles. And God says, whoa, wait, what are you doing out there by yourself? You're going to get killed. You're going to get hurt. So that's what happened to people. And then chapters 15 through 20 um, talk about the other years throughout the desert. And these chapters really don't tell us much, which is kind of the point. The point of the book of Numbers is, Here's what God wanted you to do, and you refuse to follow God. Okay, that's one of the main points of this book. And God says, fine, here's your punishment. Because you don't want to go in the promised land, because you're trying to replace Moses, you're going to spend the next 38 years in the desert. And that's after two years of spending in the desert already. Then we get to chapter 15. It throws this interesting part about where to worship once in the promised land. It's like God telling them, hey, I know all you, you guys who refuse to follow me. You're not going to the promised land. But once you get to the promised land, all you younger guys, here's where you're going to do your worship at. It's like God saying, my plan are gonna, my plan's going to happen with or without you. So that's what's, uh, what's kind of happening there. And then we get to chapter 16, and there's another major rebellion. Can you imagine that? Okay. And this, this rebellion threatened Israel's leadership. But again, God stepped in and took care of the issue. And all the people that were part of the rebellion died because of their sin. The leaders died in an earthquake that swallowed them up. The followers died. And again, what we call the all-consuming fire. The, fi- the pureness of God, that fire of God that came down. And, and, it, and it sounds like our God's an anger God, doesn't it? But it's not. God did this after rebellion, after rebellion, after rebellion, after another time, another time, another time. God keeps warning them, keeps warning them. It's like a parent that keeps warning a child, right? And eventually the parent finally goes, okay, that's it. Here's your punishment. And this is what God is doing here. So then we reach chapter 17 through 19, laws uh, preparing Israel for the land once they get into it. And in chapter 20, Moses' sin of taking God's glory. And I was talking with the pastors today um, about this, about how sometimes we can take God's glory. We had a TAC meeting, Tulare Association of Churches today, and uh, how we can take God's glory that was intended for him. That we're all part of different ministries, and we have parachurch ministries involved, and it should all be about God and not about us, not about our ministries, not about propping us up and making us look good. It should be about God. And that should translate down to the members of our congregation and, and, and the believers uh, as a whole within our community. It should be about God and not about ourselves. Um, so then we have 37 years of silence. Doesn't tell us much of what happened in those 37 years. We get glimpses here and there, but not a ton. And the purpose was to show the consequences of disobedience, okay? 
So the last section is the plains of Moab. And uh, this is like 20 through, what, 36, if my memory's correct. Um, God, once again, is preparing them, the new generation, to enter into the promised land. And then we have these weird stories that are kind of thrown in there with Balaam, okay? The king of Moab is worried about the Israelites. He, contra- you know, he contacts a, a magician, a seer, whatever you want to call him, what we would say a false prophet, um, uh, you know, to pronounce a curse on Israel. And he tries multiple times, okay? But every time he goes to curse them, what happens? He blesses them. It turned the, the curse. It's like God's going, no, 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 no. What's coming out of your mouth is not going to be a curse. It's going to be a blessing. And finally, at the very end, he's wanting to go. And he's literally riding a donkey. And his donkey stops in this kind of this road that was hard to get through. You know, only had one little area to go through to pass. It has rock walls on the side. And the donkey wouldn't go anymore. And he's just beating the donkey. Just like, all get out. And finally, the donkey, okay, this is Alan's paraphrase, looks up at him and says, stop hitting me. I can't go any further because the angel of the Lord is in front of me and he's going to kill me and you. Yeah, okay. Now, you can go back and read exactly what he said, but that's basically what he said. He saves Balaam and Balaam actually blesses Israel again instead of cursing them. So they're on the cusp of the promised land. And remember, You have the golden calf in Exodus 32, right? Right as soon as they get out of Egypt, what do they do? They start worshiping, yeah, a different God, okay? They rebelled. Then you have the rebellion at Kadesh in Numbers 11 through 14. And here, right on the cusp of the promised land, you will get the same. They are on the Jordan River. And what do they start to do? They start acting like the locals, they start worshiping Baal, which we've talked about that God uh, before and, and how you worship Baal, and we won't necessarily go into that tonight. Um, but it begins a problem that Israel will continue to do over time. Oh, yeah, we need some WD-40 for those wheels. But, uh, you know, they will have this rebellion over time again again of of leading uh, leading themselves astray worshiping other gods and god sent a plug on them in chapter 26 that nearly killed them off and then we jump to chapter 26 that uh or 25 has nearly killed them off 26 you have another census and in chapter 27 you have instructions for worship again in case they forgot how to worship now, why would you forget how to worship if you've been doing it all along? Because you weren't doing it all along, right? You're out worshiping other gods. And what, what does worshiping other gods lead to? Well, you start acting like everybody else. You start acting like the world. And what, is he, what, and what else did they start doing? They started intermarrying. Now, a lot of people in the past have used this in the church to say, well, this person with this color skin, skin should never marry this person with this color skin. And that is not what intermarrying is all about. Intermarrying or marrying somebody that you shouldn't be marrying um, is all about marrying somebody who does not have the same beliefs as you, as you do. 
And what it does is it causes division within your family. Okay? If a Christian marries a non-Christian, they butt heads all the time. Okay? It, it causes all sorts of problems. If a Christian marries a Buddhist, what happens? Well, where do you take these kids to church? You see what I'm saying? You know, even we've even I've had discussions uh, with uh, with different people about, um, you know, somebody from uh, well, uh, well, I won't say who, but um, somebody marrying somebody from the Catholic, you know, we're non-denominational, we're, we're conservative Christian and somebody marrying Catholic. OK, now, are those two different faiths? Well, depending on where you come from, I don't know. I don't believe all Catholics are going to going to hell. OK, um, like some people would. Um, that's a discussion for another time, but that does lend problems to where do you take the kids to church? Because Catholic family, Catholic traditions, we want them to go through this. Well, some of their beliefs don't align up with some of the beliefs that we have. So what do you do there? So I would not say that that's exact intermarrying that, that the Lord says don't do. I'm just saying it causes issue. But if you marry somebody who's not a Christian, if we let, you know, if we don't impress upon our children, grandchildren, all those things to not marry another Christian, it can get the, it can lead them astray. OK, and that's what Israel did for a long time because they didn't wipe out these people as they went into the land. But that's a whole nother book, Joshua, that we'll go into later. Now, numbers is also used in two different books of the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, your sin is nothing new. Your new freedoms come with responsibility. Just as the freedoms came with, you know, coming out of Egypt, you gain new freedoms, but you had responsibilities of not worshiping like the Egyptians, right? Going into a land where you're going to have people worshiping Baal and other gods, sacrificing a certain age and stuff like that to those gods and you're going to be enticed to do the same and you have responsibility not to do that and paul says what you're doing corinthians with your immorality your rejection of the church leadership that was put into place you're complaining you're acting just like the israelites did in the desert and it caused them 40 years What's it going to cause you? And that's what Paul basically said. How many times has our rebellion caused God to put something on pause? Okay. Think back to those of you who are more mature in age. Did you ever withhold a blessing from one of your children because of the way they were acting? And I'm not trying to make a point here, Brandon, okay? <laughs> I'm not trying to make a point. I'm not trying to throw this in your face or anything like that. But, but as a parent, I'm sure there were times where you, you were like, okay, I really wanted to do this for my child, but they've been acting consistently for months on end this way, so I'm going to not do that. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> How many times has God done that to us as individuals? I really want to bless them with this, but I'm going to withhold that part of the blessing until they mature a little bit, until they recognize me. You know, some people, how could God allow me to go down that path? Well, God put up this roadblock. You put up that roadblock. You climbed over that one. You ran through that one. And God finally said, okay, go. I don't want you to go. I love you so much. Don't do it. 
and I'm going to be here for when you start turning around and heading back, just like the prodigal son. Okay, so that's what uh, Paul was trying to tell the Corinthians and Lightning McQueen understood that. So he said, Amen. Now, in Hebrews, the author refers to the account of the spies as a warning for the Christian readers, okay? Uh, you know, the spies, as they go in over to Jericho and all that kind of stuff. I'm sorry, not Jericho. Uh, when they went first into the promised land. So the first going into the promised land. He said that it was a warning to the, re- readers, uh, or to the readers to take care so that they don't have an evil, unbelieving heart. And that really was the crux of the issue. God says, go over there and check out the land. It's full of milk and honey, and I'm going to give it to you. And the Israelites went in there, and then they came back out going, "Ah, there's no way, I can't do this. And it's like slapping God in the face. You're not going to give that to us. You can't do that. After everything that God just did to get them out of Egypt, and they're like quaking in their boots. Now, I I, we kind of laugh at that, but we're kind of the same way. I mean, the warning there is for us not to have an unbelieving heart that will take us away from the living God, okay, um, like the Israelites of old, because it robs us of the peace that God has to offer, because it doesn't matter the difficulties in life if we know we're on the path of God. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean they're less difficult. It just means that we have a peace that God is with us and that we're going to get through this. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And that light may be, I'm with God in heaven in the end. Okay. Now that light might be, oh, I see the, this trial coming to an end soon. But, but ultimately, the light at the end of the tunnel for us is being in heaven with God. Right? Right. So that... Uh, uh, that is numbers in a nutshell. I hope I kind of, I, I, numbers is confusing already and I'll probably confuse you more. Yes. Um, you said that numbers is referred to twice in the New Testament. You said the first one is 1 Corinthians 10. Yes. What was the second one? I don't have, I, I did not write down my, my scripture reference, but I can look that up. It could be. I'd have to look it up. I don't have the, I don't have the whole passage in front of me. I just wrote it down and I didn't, uh, uh, look at uh, the scripture reference on that. So, but I can find it for you. Not immediately, but <laughs> I know he's like, mm-hmm. yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, any other uh, questions or comments about the book? Any questions about last week's that you maybe have gone through and looked and you didn't? Yes. Yes, Deuteronomy talks about foods. Now, when it comes to the law of food, there's many places where God says, don't do this, or don't eat this, or do eat this, or whatever. And the Israelites took one little passage and made hundreds, if not thousands, of rules that's called the Midrash, the rabbinical writings, okay, That'd be like me as a pastor going, okay, God said this, so let me, write the, let me explain it to you guys a little bit more and let me write out all these different things that you guys have to follow because this is what God meant, okay? 
So there's one point where literally it talks about uh, not cooking a egg and a in a and chicken milk or something like that. And my question is, how do you milk a chicken? Yes. You know, I, I think that was the if my memory's correct. Yeah, I mean, there's there's certain and you're sitting there going, wait, wait a second, what? God didn't say that, you know, and um, I mean, he did say some other stuff that kind of I could see where they got the rule from, but it doesn't make sense that they got that rule out of that, if that makes sense. So Deuteronomy has a lot of those laws, and we will hit uh, Deuteronomy, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Oh, Deuteronomy next week. <laughs>